I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Uh, three guests this week. One subject, the uh, incredible, exciting Women's Final Four from Dallas this year. Three people who were there, including Ryan Rucco, who called the games for ESPN, including uh, LSU's win over Iowa, which uh, is now the most watched college basketball, women's college basketball game in the history of the U.S. And so Ryan and myself get into obviously calling that, um, the growth of the game, uh, get into the impact of Caitlin Clark, how he saw um, uh, Angel Reese and Caitlin Clark at the end of that game, as well as what was an absolutely awful job of the referees uh, calling the final. And then uh, my colleagues Chantel Jennings and Sabrina Merchant follow Ryan Rucco, and we talk about uh, they're covering the women's final four, the record viewership, how they saw it from their end, the upcoming women's tournament media rights deal, uh, why trash talking and taunting are good for women's basketball. I actually agree with that as well. And then we finished with uh, Sabrina did a very too early top 25 uh, with LSU as uh, number one on her um, her uh, top 25. And uh, so we get into some of the teams that we like and why we like them. So a uh, a women's basketball coverage with three of the best people in the United States who are part of the sport. Ryan Rucco to start, and then Chantel Jennings and Sabrina Merchant coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, very happy to have this guest. He's been on this podcast before. Ryan Rucco is fresh off calling the Women's Final Four for ESPN. He calls uh, women's college basketball on the WNBA for ESPN as well as the NBA, also part of the uh, Yes Network, where he has Yankees and Nets responsibilities. A uh, very busy person who opted not to take a vacation after the Women's Final Four. Might have been a mistake there, Ryan. And uh, welcome uh, yeah, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. I think you've been talking to my wife, Richard, because uh, at the home, I think, I think it's seen as a mistake that there was not a vacation after the Final Four, but lesson learned for next year. All right. I, by the way, apologies for not knowing this. So I'll just ask you. You can tell me. Yeah. Um, have you ever done a broadcast before that ha- that averaged close to ten million viewers? No, that is the largest viewership of any game I've ever done by far. Wow. Okay. So when you when you know, and I'm sure you're on a text chain with uh, Rebecca Lowe and uh, Rebecca Lowe, Rebecca Lobo and Hall and Holly Rowe, et cetera. 
Um, so when the viewership number comes in, either ESPN gives you the heads up early or you saw it the, when the rest of us did, what was your reaction when you saw that Iowa LSU had set a, not only set a record, but shattered the record for the most viewed um, women's college basketball game ever in the United States? Yeah, so our boss, Pat Lowry, who is absolutely incredible at what she does, she oversees all of our women's college basketball um, at ESPN, and, and she's done it, and she's done it well for a really, really long time. Um, she sent a text to just like uh, an expanded group chain that had all of us on it uh, that just said nine point nine M with an exclamation point, and I was like, "Wait, what?" Are you kidding me? Because I had thought, like, I, I knew we would break the record of 5.58 million just based on how monstrous our, our semifinal numbers were and based on the attention and, and and the growth that we could feel. But I didn't know if the afternoon would keep us from getting to that kind of number. Like, in my head, I was thinking, wow, if this was ABC and, and at, you know, 8 o'clock at night, we probably would be getting around 10 million. That would be crazy. Hopefully we still get seven in the afternoon because seven would be awesome. So which we had the game in the afternoon and she came with the 9.9 million text. I was like, oh my gosh. And then she hit us with the 12.6 million peak. And then soon after uh, the graphic that ESPN PR tweeted out, but everybody's reaction to the messaging was euphoric and just like, you know, as if a, you know, a text message went around and you were just getting ping pongs of celebratory responses from everybody involved. And I, and I think, Richard, what you feel ratings wise on this that maybe is different from some other projects is, look, everybody wants the projects that they're on to rate well because it's good for the company and it's good for them because if the products they are on are doing well, right, then they're, they're seen in a positive light within the company. But you also have a lot of people who are on this project who put their heart and soul into growing the game of women's basketball and who feel a level of pride and ownership when they see that growth and feel like they've had a hand in it, even if it is marginal compared to the players on the floor and the impact that they actually make on the ratings. So I think what we were seeing was this collective reaction of joy for the sport of women's basketball and it getting the kind of pop and audience that it deserves. Ryan, you know, you, you called the, um, the semifinal game between Iowa and South Carolina. And that obviously had um, a ton of amazing storylines in it, including I think something that casual fans could just wrap their hand around, which is this transcendent star player shooter on one team, trying to take down this dynasty with its own star players and hall of fame coach on the other team. The, that game um, set a record obviously for the most watched uh, women's final four semifinal ever. Did in the, I just wonder when you're sort of calling that or when you're part of the weekend, did you have a sense that like this was going to be this kind of monumental weekend, like heading in, did you sort of know after the conclusion of the South Carolina Iowa game? Because obviously, so many people were excited about. It. I'm like, I'm wondering for someone who's literally, you know, literally in the center of the storm. You're talking to players, you're talking to coaches, you're talking to support staff. Like for you, did I don't know? Did you get any kind of indicator that all this might have happened as the play-by-play voice, or again, did it really just come home when Pat Lowry sends that text? 
I had a feeling, Richard, that something like this was going to happen. And, and I was aware of the the bubbling interest. I think the first thing that made me aware was just seeing how into Caitlin's run people were, seeing people in my own life who maybe had never been totally locked into women's basketball or, or the you know NCAA tournament, being totally into her Sweet 16 and Elite Eight games, knowing what it would mean and seeing the rating success that we had had universally across the board in the early rounds of the tournament, then in the Iowa games, then in the South Carolina games and the LSU games and realizing, oh, okay, you know, South Carolina has, has been a ratings bell cow for us over the last couple of years. Um, LSU and South Carolina playing each other in the regular season set a record for us earlier this year. LSU set records this season at the PMAC Center when it came to attendance. Obviously, it's a well-known school. So I just felt like we had you know, a couple programs that have huge interest. And then the star that was on a Steph Curry at Davidson-like run doing things we've never seen in the women's game. And it was going to create a, a level of interest we've never seen before. I was pretty confident that the Iowa-South Carolina semifinal was going to pierce sports culture and conversation in a way that a single women's basketball game doesn't always do, even though that's obviously always our goal and our hope. And now I think will be more and more attainable. And I could get that sense afterwards, you know, cause you had the story of the, this, as you said, this transcendent generational star going up against this dynastic team that seemed infallible. And so it was a, it's an, it's an underdog story, but it's also this great talent. And then it's by the way, South Carolina, you know, as a 42-game winning streak and the, the defending champs, and they have stars in their own right, including their head coach and the number one pick of this year's draft, Aaliyah Boston. So I, I felt like that to me, Richard. I think I thought, like, okay, it's probably going to do, like, three million, something like that. Maybe, maybe we get to four because last year, you know, we had great numbers in the semis, and I think we were in, like, the two and a half million, which was seen as great success. So when we did five and a half million for that semi, I was like, oh my gosh. And I saw the LSU Virginia Tech number was like in three and a half. And I was like, wow, okay, this is crazy. Um, and seeing the way people were into it, the way people reached out to me, I, I kind of knew, okay, like the championship game is going to be appointment viewing. The only thing I wondered about was an afternoon on a Sunday and whether or not they would, that would hurt. But obviously uh, it did not hurt. Um, and, uh, and everything that the rating showed definitely correlated to the energy and attention that we were feeling around the game as we prepared for them. All right. Let me ask you from your perspective, how you saw it, as you know, there've, uh, uh, there've now been a million think pieces, a million tweets. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the discourse on, uh, Caitlin Clark and, uh, and Angel Reese, it, it, it's almost reaching, uh, you know, uh, primary election uh, <laughs> discourse. So, uh, by the way, which I think is quite frankly very good for the sport. Um, so, but from your perspective, calling this, you you have a lot going on, Ryan. You have to call the um, the fact that the game is over and LSU has won a championship. Like every person in your position, you know that that's an important call for people who are gonna uh, for the fan bases, for the players and support staff who are gonna watch this video for the next fifty years. So you got some responsibilities to play by play broadcaster. Um, were you aware that Angel Reese had sort of gone to seek out uh, Caitlin Clark and um, 
and and to let her know that they they had won. How did you see it from your perspective? I, I wasn't aware when it happened. I was only aware once we rolled the shot back in. Um, but I think my producer, Carrie Callahan, who, by the way, is unbelievable. She is an incredible, incredible producer. Um, she, I think she got in my ear and said, all right, you know, we have a couple more celebratory shots. Uh, Angel Reese, uh, Angel Reese celebrating, something like that. She didn't say to me, Angel Reese taunting or Angel Reese, you know, she, she had no opinion about it. And I think that was important and a good producerial touch um, because it didn't in any way prepare me or make me anticipate something other than whatever I was just going to see with her celebrating. And I think, I think what I said when we showed the shot was something like an LSU finishing things the way they started them, because when we talked to the LSU players, I remember Jasmine Carson talking to us about how they will played a flare intentionally, you know, that they were loud intentionally. Uh, and they thought with the way they about their work on the court this year, to use Jasmine's word, was lit for the women's game. And so any sort of demonstrative celebration or reaction wasn't going to be surprising to me because it was very much in line with the way LSU played all season long to the point that like when we were getting ready to do the LSU Virginia Tech game, Kenny Brooks, the outstanding head coach of the Hokies, told us he had a conversation with his team about, hey, but make sure to keep your poise because when they when they make big plays, they're going to try and make you feel it. They're going to try and intimidate you like we have to keep our poise. Um, it was something Lisa Bluter also uh, communicated with us on a, a similar concept. So that was very much in the fabric of what was authentic to LSU as a team. So I did not think anything dramatic about it. Um, you know, I, I think that thing I know from the access that I get is Angel is a really impressive, uh, smart hooper. And she, one of the things Kim Mulkey was talking to us about in LSU's final practice was how, because we were noticing how talkative Angel was as far as pointing out and diagnosing different things as they were going through their walkthrough. And Kim was talking about how often in games, Angel's making suggestions going to the bench about like, coach, why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? You know? Um, and I also knew from talking with Angel that she had incredible respect from Caitlin Clark. One of the first things she said when she sat down with us the day before the championship game was, damn, Caitlin Clark is a beast. That was her first quote to us. Um, so I think with that context too, you don't, you know, the same reason why I am not, I know the fiery competitive spirit Caitlin Clark plays with. I know the fiery competitive sp spirit Angel Reese plays with. I have a little more context on both young women. I know how impressive they both are off the floor as well as what they've achieved on. So I'm so I don't overreact necessarily to one individual act on the floor because I I, I I'm very well aware of uh, of the great intentions of, of these young women. So maybe that helps a little bit for me in the moment to digest something I see that otherwise, you know, it can be very memeable or replayable and is the kind of snippet that 
you know, could be inflammatory for someone who desperately wanted Iowa to win and feels like it's being rubbed in their face. Like, of course, if you're an Iowa fan or if you're rooting for Caitlin Clark, you wouldn't like that. Of course you wouldn't like that. You know, just like you wouldn't like it the other way if you're rooting for LSU. Like that's, you know, part of uh, taunting in sports um, but uh, or celebrating in sports. E- either way, you don't like it when you're on the losing end. But I just I didn't think of it as some, you know, monumental uh, big deal. I just thought of it as like very much in line with, the way uh, LSU went about its business all year long, which I think was a huge positive for the sport. Do you think part of how you look at this? I, I know for me, like the, the you 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 call NBA games. You yeah, you're obviously a ton of trash talking. Um, <laughs> taunting goes on in that league. By the way, trash talking happens in the women's game. I mean, just naive to think it doesn't. Right. Um, so I wonder, just from your perspective, if maybe you look at it. Um, with a little broader lens because you cover the NBA all the time. And again, like I I agree that like you can have an issue and say, you know, that uh, you could say, well, you know, you wish Angel Reese didn't do that. That said, at least this is from my perspective to sort of go like over the top and somehow like this is some kind of like the worst like criminal violation is just beyond naive and ridiculous. And also if you had no problem, this is how I look at it. Yeah. No problem with Caitlin Clark putting your ear up to the crowd, doing the Cena, uh, you can't see me stuff. Uh, you you got to be consistent here. Like it's all, it's all in some way taunting. And it's really just about your perception of what is taunting or what you take offense to or do not take offense to. But I ask all this just because I think like if you cover the NBA or if you call NBA games, you probably saw that and you're like, I've seen a million worse yeah, things. Yeah, I mean, I think like the things that drive me – Nuts is when I see someone celebrating individual acts like crazy and their team's losing. Like, that's the one that I don't get. You know, I kind of think like once you've won, you're winning, like, fair game, you could do whatever you want to do. You know, now people want to say, like, I don't know if Angel needed to, you know, chase Caitlin down around the court and spend 30 seconds, you know, running after her to go do that. Like, I get somebody being upset at that. But to turn that into, oh, she's classless. No, that that that's not. Uh, that's too much, you know? I think, like, there's, again, and I would just sort of say, I mean, unfortunately, we don't live in any kind of nuanced world anymore. But, like, th- those who are consistent on this, like, I respect. Like, if you sort of said the same thing that, like, you were, you're bothered by all forms of a player sort of, like, letting another player know something, and then this Caitlin Clark thing uh, with Angel Reese bothered you. Like, I respect that. If if you're just sort of selectively being upset, yeah, it's a little harder for me to to sort of align with you. But yeah. but again, like to to each his own. One thing I do want to ask you about because this is like really fascinating was, in my opinion, um, and I've covered, I think if the, I do the math, maybe twelve women's title games, something like that at SI. This was far and away the worst officiated title game I've ever seen. I, I don't want you to get in trouble because I know you got to deal with the the refs. That said, I I thought you and Rebecca really like addressed some things that we don't often see from a broadcasting crew, in, including the technical that Kate and Clark get, which I thought was awful in terms of time and place and understanding who that player was and what she represented in in that game and i'm wondering if you could just maybe take my listeners behind the scenes in terms of did you have a producer in your ear and what was the thought process there because particularly rebecca you both were like hey like this is just not a good call here 
Yeah. Well, look, what I always, and, and I talk, I, I really, really, really make a point in all the different leagues and properties that I broadcast on to uh, create relationships with officials, to have open lines of communication when it comes to rules. We're not always going to get rules on right on the air, but I want us to as much as possible so that we can properly inform the fan. I think it is one of the most important jobs of the play-by-play broadcasters to be on top of rules, to be able to communicate them accurately. And so I'm always talking to officials with the aim of that happening. And one of the things I always talk to officials about is, look, like I'm always, when we go in and dig in on the micro, I'm always going to give perspective on the macro because the macro is that that this is a ridiculously hard job and most officials acquit themselves very nicely despite how hard of a job it is. And I always think that perspective is one that should be taken regardless of your frustration with individual calls. And so because of that, I like to think that there's a fairness I'm always coming from. I want to shine a positive light on the refs. I don't want them to be a negative story. I want the story of the game to be about the players, not the refs. And it's so even why it's, it's even cooked into the approach of how Rebecca and I were talking about the officiating throughout the game, that we weren't just overtly saying, you know, wow, this has been some poorly officiated game, right? Instead you're saying, Hey, there's been some really frustrating calls for both sides right now, you know, just to, you know, try and take a little layer off of the attention on it while also being journalistically respectful for what you are seeing. And what we were seeing, I thought, was an officiating crew that called that game way too tightly out of the gates. I talked to a longtime official a couple of weeks ago about these big games, and they said one of the things that they tell their crews is it is better to be late and correct than early and wrong. And what I thought happened early on from the first foul called against McKenna Warnock, I thought there was a quick whistle. There was barely anything there and a foul was put on Warnock. Then one happened on Monica Sonano. Then one happened on Angel Reese. And to me, all of them were whistles that blew right away where if the officials would have just taken a beat, they probably wouldn't have been fouls. And it changes the course of how the game is played. Now, I'll get back to the technical in a second, but just one thing to say, while it, it was, I think, objectively a poorly officiated game, what I will say that gives, I think, everybody some comfort is knowing the way LSU shot and played, nobody in the country was beating them that day. So a hundred percent. Right. So like, so like the result in no way was determined. It's just a shame that we couldn't have Caitlin Clark, Monica Sonano, Katiri Poole, Alexis Morris, Angel Reese, McKenna Warnock, all not in foul trouble. Like that was a shame that they all were in foul trouble. But I think, you know, the results uh, would have been the same with the way LSU played. They just played one of the greatest championship games we've ever seen. Now to go back, I know this is long, Richard, but to go back to the technical, here's the thing. What was said in the pool report afterwards is technically accurate, which is that Iowa was given a delay of game and Caitlin throwing the ball there is also a delay of game warning. It calls for a delay of game in the college game. The person who does that, the player who does that, then gets assessed with a T. 
which is also a personal foul in the game. So technically, letter of the law, if they wanted to call that a delay of game on Caitlin, they are correct. However, why we reacted the way that we did on the air is twofold. First of all, you don't have to call that a delay of game there. It's not like somebody's trying to inbound and run. It was after a free throw. Exactly. Th think about how many times after a free throw, somebody just takes the ball, bounces it a few times, sh shoots it up against the hoop while they're waiting for people to get set. That's not a normal time where a delay of game is called, okay? Secondly, what was communicated to Rebecca and I at the moment was she got the T for what she said and for throwing the ball. Delay of game was not mentioned to us. So once that was said to us and we saw a replay in which she clearly said nothing and didn't throw the ball, she rolled the ball behind her back lightly. It became very clear to us that that was not the kind of call that should be made on that stage. And I think if the you know officials and Penny Davis, who runs the officials and who's been wonderful to us and, and always has an open line of communication, and we so appreciate that. If they want to say like, hey, no, that's a delay game, letter of the law, they have an argument to stand on. I just, that was not what was called in the moment, but that was at least not what was communicated in the moment. And I still think that there should have been a, a wider, um, you know, rope of leniency for that particular situation. Yeah, I mean, again, like, you know, that's a, you should be working for uh, the United Nations, Ryan. That was a very diplomatic way <laughs> of saying that the interpretation of that of that ruling, in my opinion, was terrible. And you, you've nailed it on the thing. The the a referee, in my opinion, in that situation has to make the judgment as to whether Caitlin Clark is intentionally trying to delay the game with that motion. Right. Anybody, in my opinion, if you get away from the the energy and emotion and intensity of a moment if the three officials were able to do that i know that's hard to do they can't do that then if they did i think there's a um i think the honest assessment would be that she wasn't doing that she wasn't into, you know she didn't she's not taking the ball throwing it into no. the crowd like yeah no. you have to use in my opinion judgment and then i i always have sided with the idea that like i'm sorry but like there, there is a different standard for star players like that. There just is the reality of that. And we have seen that throughout the course of officiating in the world. And like Leo Messi is unlikely to get a second yellow because he's Leo Messi unless the unless the violation is so over the top. And that's that's sort of where I'm I going. you know what, Richard, I tend to agree with you on that. And, and even more so than just star players, what I would say is in a game like that, I really do think there should be a focus of. Yes. We, we don't Players want to call decided. fouls. Yes. We don't want yeah. to call fouls. Like, look, some fouls you're going to have to call. Someone gets hit on the wrist going up for a layup. It's a foul. But the things that we don't have to call, this is the kind of game where we shouldn't, especially in a sport where there's only five personals, which is another thing that could be addressed at some point. But like, I, I just think going in, the thought process should be foul we call better be a foul. And we're better off erring on the side of not calling than calling. All right. Um, two last quick things here. Do you have your? Do you know your uh, early WNBA schedule yet, or um, does that come later in the month? I have an idea of some of it. Uh, I still have to be finalized with my with my boss for WNBA, but I do have an idea of some of it. What do you want to know, Richard? I was gonna. I'm curious if you would if you think you'll be on the call for Brittany Griner's first game. 
Well, I am. I know they. I know that they want me to be. I have a Yankees conflict um, with that mm. day and uh, the Yankees uh, and the S Network, as of right now, have first call on my dates and they're they're they work with me on things but this is something they need me for so as of now i am not on her first road game which is i think the 19th that friday i am on her first home game in phoenix that sunday may 21st we'll see if anything changes between uh you know our recording this and and, the, and that game that gets me on there but but yeah, I'll be there for the home game, but not her uh, her opener in LA as of now because I have a uh, Yankees play by play in um, Cincinnati that night. Okay, last one. I, I apologize for not knowing this. I don't. Have you done any Yankees play by play yet? Oh yeah, uh, probably this, not. This season. This season, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've done, I know you've done it before. I've done um, three spring training games. Okay, so you haven't done the regular season yet, which is good. Actually, still helps with my question here. Um, have you been thinking about the impact of the pitch clock on your broadcast? You've obviously talked to other broadcasters, you know, whether it's Michael Kay or your colleague from the Yes Network or others. But the it's been interesting this year in that it absolutely has affected the broadcast in terms of much harder to show longer replays. The analyst has to be a little quicker. But in talking to the play-by-play people, I talked to Joe Davis not too long ago. Um, the play-by-play people have seemed to be fine with this. It doesn't seem to be affecting them as much as it's affecting the behind-the-scenes people. How do you, you – you're you, eventually, at some point, you will call a game. Have you been thinking about this, and, and how do you see it? You know, I, I actually – before my first spring training game, I got some great uh, prep from our vice president of production at Yes, Jared Boschnack, who does a terrific job. He called me, and he was like, hey – just so you know, it's going to feel a little different. Things are going to move a little quicker. It's not going to feel like your typical spring game where you're just getting in a million storylines and you have all day to do it. Like, it moves quickly. And so I was like, oh, he's like, so you may want to go in with some targeted things that you and Jack Curry want to get into and just be aware that our whole rule of don't start a story with two outs, it, it feels even more applicable. And there are times where with one out, you're even going to feel it. And it was really good advice because – First spring game I did, I, I could feel the difference in the broadcast. And what I would just say is it's more action-focused now. So when I do a basketball game, I'm trying to obviously set the storylines around each team and specific players, but it's all done in pockets here and there where we can around the action, right? And the action clearly takes centerfold. Whereas in baseball, it is much more a sport where – the conversation and the storytelling is at the center and the action is what you're diving into with little pockets of this feels like, yeah, it's not quite basketball, but it feels like a, a little bit of a move towards that where the action is a little bit more front and center than it has been. And the storytelling, you have to be a little more selective in how you're getting in and out with it. And so I do actually feel a palpable difference, even in those spring training games, but one that to me is welcome because when you're calling and I don't call 162, I only do about, you know, 20, 25 games. But when you're calling the course of a season, it's nice sometimes to let the action be able to carry you rather than having to consistently come up with content. 
throughout a long season. Even if, I mean, with the Yankees, there's always stories that you want to talk about, of course, because they're always good, but I'm sure it's going to help even more for organizations that are used to losing 100 games where, okay, hey, at least the action's moving so quickly that we can keep getting back on that rather than having to continue to, you know, tell stories about a team that is struggling big time. So it's different, Richard. It definitely is different, but I, I mean, I think in a great way. Ryan Rucco is a broadcaster of many jobs. He just finished calling the Women's Final Four in Dallas. He also uh, calls the NBA and WNBA for ESPN, as well as his uh, Yankees and Nets responsibilities for the Yes Network. You're, you're Iron Eagle 3.0. Congratulations, <laughs> Ryan Rucco. You have more jobs than anyone. Um, thank you for uh, joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast and uh and I will check back with you down the road. But great job by you and the rest of the ESPN crew uh, in Dallas. Very exciting to watch. Thank you, Richard. I appreciate it, man. And I know we all appreciate the way you have always uh, championed women's sports. And it's great to see uh, it, it growing and growing, which is exactly what these incredible young women deserve. So thank you, ma'am. Thank you, Ryan. All right. As I said at the top, excited to have uh, my two guests back on this podcast, Chantel Jennings. And Sabrina Merchant, our national writers for The Athletic, covering uh, the WNBA and women's college basketball. They were just in Dallas covering the women's Final Four. As you heard from Ryan Rucco, we uh, we talked about the extraordinary viewership numbers and just the interest in this tournament. And we will continue that conversation with uh, my colleagues from The Athletic, Chantel and Sabrina. Welcome back to the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. All right, let me start with you, Sabrina. Um, it, it, we're taping this a couple of days after um, the Women's Final Four. From someone who is a writer, sort of on-the-ground perspective, I wanted to just get your sort of big-picture sense of what it felt like. And for you, did it feel – I don't want to call this a moment because this is sort of an evolution of the growth, but did, did something feel unique about this tournament just given – what we ultimately ended up seeing when it came to viewership and interest and all that other stuff. Yeah. So I had the privilege of being in Seattle before Dallas. So I got to follow Iowa all the way through from the sweet 16 to the national final. And, you know, truthfully, I was kind of expecting there to be limited interest in Seattle just because all of the teams that were scheduled to play there were at least 1300 miles away. And you would have had no idea considering how much of the Iowa fan base had actually traveled there. And so it definitely felt like for Caitlin in particular and for Iowa as a whole, this was something very, very special that was happening. And I wasn't sure if it was just, you know, for this fan base in particular, or if it was something that everyone in the nation was experiencing. But then you saw those numbers for, you know, the Elite Eight game between Louisville and Iowa, and then obviously the numbers for the Final Four and the National Final. Right. It definitely feels like Caitlin Clark inspired something very special. And I hope that it's not just her, but there is something uniquely captivating about the way she plays basketball, the way she, you know, carries herself on the court. There's, there's a lot of shit talking. There's a lot of, you know, spunk with the way that she uh, carries herself. And I do think that she is kind of naturally charismatic in the way that she draws people. Plus the fact that she's pretty freaking good at basketball. So yeah, I would think that she singularly like her star was the most notable takeaway for me from these last two weeks. All right, we'll get, trust me, we'll get into trash talking and taunting for sure. Chantel, from your um, like perspective writ large, what did, the, what did covering this 
tournament feel like? And if you want to contrast it to others, feel free. Yeah, I think there was obviously the Caitlin factor, but I think you also sort of had the upset factor, which hasn't always been a storyline in women's college basketball. I think the fact that Stanford and uh, Indiana, both number one seeds, lost early was helpful in terms of ratings. I think, you know, even when we got to, uh, I think it was the final four, right before we got to the final four, when South Carolina won their title in Greenville, someone had asked about sort of what UConn's loss meant to women's college basketball. And Don said, you know, UConn's still going to be a part of the story. (laughs) Like the fact that UConn isn't there is now part of the story rather than sort of extending their streak of 14 final fours. And so I think you had this this shift sort of in expectation where, you know, usually the final four is three number one seeds, it kind of feels like, and Stanford and UConn are usually two of those. And the fact that neither one of those teams were there, I think that sort of drew some eyes. I think the fact that this was the first time, or sorry, the fact that this was only the third time in finals history that you didn't have two you didn't have a number one seed in the finals. I think that sort of drew eyes. That's sort of one of those things that so many people say about women's basketball is that it's all chalk. And I think this tournament proved that wrong. And I think that also helped aid in the growth of the viewership numbers for sure. Yeah, I agree. I want to stick with you, Chantel. Um, when Sabrina mentioned this, when the semifinal numbers came out for Iowa's win over South Carolina, it's the most watched final is most much semifinal game of all time. The average of that was 5.5 million. So at that point, you you've already sort of you're you're already in this sort of the history terrain when it comes to television viewership. And I think anybody like myself who sort of has covered this for a while, even if you've covered it very tangentially, you just sort of can understand that like if a number on cable was 5.5 million, if there's a lot of momentum with the game on over the air ABC it's going to top that. The question is, like, how much will it top it by? When we learned that the viewership number for the game was 9.9 million and then the peak of it was over 12 million, I think even those of us who, um, like, expected major viewership numbers, like people who write about viewership, were stunned. I mean, these were, this is like kind of fantasy land numbers when you're getting into, like, beating the Daytona 500. You're getting into very like low-level Thursday night football kind of games. You don't cover the sport from a media lens per se. You you mostly you two mostly cover it, I think, from the uh, the game perspective, player perspective, coach perspective. But viewership is massive. Like this is how this is the engine that drives the sport. And so when you sort of saw when you saw that number or learned of that number, I wanted to get a sense like what did you think? What was your reaction? How did you process it? Yeah, I think when I saw the bracket initially, sort of knowing that the run that Iowa was on, as well as South Carolina, sort of going in that quest for perfection, which was also sort of something that I think brought a lot of eyes to the game this year. um, I kind of looked at it like, damn, they should have Iowa and South Carolina with the opportunity to meet in the national title game. That's what would be best, you know, in terms of viewership numbers. And I honestly wasn't sure what the numbers would look like once those two teams met. I think just because there was such an expectation, those two teams would have met last year as well if Iowa had not lost to Creighton and, you know, obviously other things could happen. But there was just so much anticipation for that game, sort of two years, uh, these two stars, the two most recent national players of the year, 
um, with an opportunity to sort of settle the score on the floor, which is, you know, sort of the <laughs> every sports fan's dream, right? Um, even when they're not guarding one another. And so I really wasn't sure what the finals numbers would look like. And, you know, we saw obviously Louisville, Iowa got good numbers. We saw Iowa, South Carolina got good numbers. I thought we'd maybe see a bump. I didn't think we would see 10 million. I, if you had asked me, my guess, I probably would have said, eh, you know, they might hit seven, which still would have been a great number, right? Yeah. That still would have been, been more than last year. That would have been a record, but I, I don't think I would have come within 2 million of, of what it was. All right. What about you, Sabrina? I mean, again, you, you've, you know, the number comes out, ESPN is obviously going to promote it. You know, I give the athletic a lot of credit. They're, they're very good when it comes to like sort of notable viewership numbers, no matter what the sport is. So we wrote it sort of like the, you know, the New York times and Washington post of the world will. Um, so this is, again, you're a pretty hardcore women's basketball writer. This is a significant, significant, um, metric for the sport that's never been reached before. What, again, when you saw that, what were your thoughts? I just thought it was really exciting. Like Chantel, I was a little worried about, you know, the potential for a letdown after Iowa, South Carolina. And, you know, part of me wonders like what Iowa, South Carolina would have done on AVC, considering we got 10 million for Iowa LSU. But it was just really, really exciting and such perfect timing because, you know, the Nash the TV deal that the NCAA tournament has is, is almost over and they'll be negotiating a new one, ideally for women's basketball individually. So it's it's just perfect, a perfect moment for this to have happened. And the fact that all of the major players from those two teams are coming back and you can market them heading into next season. I think it's just really, really good momentum for the sport as a whole. There's some real Monica Zanano hate there, Sabrina. Not all <laughs> the major players are coming back. Let's stand up for Watertown, Watertown's finest, Monica Zanano. Oh, well, now, now I'm going to be paying attention to the transfer market if I was going to get a big uh, in the transfer market. Um, so, Sabrina, let me stick with that. Chantel, I know you've written about this, so I'd like you to follow her as well. Um, you both, I'm sure, have uh, not only read these stories, but perhaps written them in some form that the NCAA has a decision uh, to make here. Do you separate the women's tournament from all the other sport championships? Undoubtedly, at this point, you might be able to get a hundred million for the women's tournament, if not more. And I might argue now, given the numbers we just saw, you probably could get more. And you take that, put it on an open bid, see where it goes. Or do you keep it with the other championships because you can now use the women's tournament to up the bid on those championships? Um, a lot of people in the sport, Don Staley in particular, want this thing to go open bid. I, I understand all that. I'm, you know, I, maybe if you're a, like a track and field coach, you you want the women's tournament to stay back because it could really help your sport get more promotion. How do you see this, uh, Sabrina? Which is now, I think, a really really big story in the world of women's basketball because they now have this property that's 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 literally worth a hundred million, if not more. Yeah, I think they have to separate it just because its value was being diminished when it was bundled with everything else. And I think there are enough sports in the rest of that bundle, like gymnastics and baseball and softball that should be able to carry the rest of that together without needing this cash cow. That is the women's basketball tournament at this point. I just think there's, there's too much money involved to lump it up with everyone. And the fact that we've had these discussions for the last two years about the deliberate devaluing of the women's basketball tournament and the, the unequal treatment between the men's and women's it's just it's gone too long and 
even from an optics perspective, I think it's just really important that they separate them. Yeah, I happen to agree with you, Sabrina. How do you see it, Chantal? I completely agree. I think especially considering you have a new NCAA president and Charlie Baker, if within his first year, he sort of perpetuates this downplaying of the value of women's basketball and saying that, you know, women's basketball should carry these other sports instead of men's basketball should carry these other sports. I think that would just be such a misstep on his part. And I completely agree, though the valuation was 81 to 112 million in the Kaplan report. And that was after the 2021 final, which drew 4.1 million. And so to think that that's what the valuation was at that point, and now we're looking at a title game that drew 2.5 times that, you know, it's it's certainly going to, you know, the price has gone up for women's basketball. And so to continue to say that this is the one sport on which other sports should sort of be carried. Um, it, in every way, it's, you know, financially not smart. I have to think it is optically not smart. Um, and again, for Baker in his first year, I can't imagine that would be something he would do. Yeah, no, I, you, I, you, I feel like you just made every single point that um, ends the argument and you're right. I probably downplayed it. The, 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 um, what you cited in terms of a potential valuation was done before this tournament. The other thing is too, is all you need, honestly, is another bidder against ESPN and that's the game changer. And again, I don't know if like Amazon would think about this, or I don't know if like, uh, NBC or Fox would, but that's all it would take like that. That's all it would take to really take this thing into a stratosphere but then the sport obviously would have to think about do we want to leave ESPN which I think would be a big mistake because to their credit I do think they've really promoted the game and I think they actually really care about it as a property so there's some interesting um sort of subtext and decisions there uh I want to I'm going to stick with you um Chantel because you wrote um a piece that uh correct me if I'm wrong on the headline but I think the headline was Angel Reese's Trash Talking Caitlin Clark's taunting are good for women's basketball. Um, I 100% agree, but I uh, let me get it from the writer. What's the premise of that piece? <laughs> I can tell you what the headline was when I submitted it. <laughs> yeah, tell me. <laughs> and what please. my editor changed it to. Uh, I believe the original headline I submitted was "Women talk shit, it's fine." Um, oh, well, that's which... such a better headline. That would have been, although you know, <laughs> for SEO purposes, I understand getting the names of the players in. Yeah, yeah, no, there's probably SEO and other uh, reasons why that did not make it into the final cut. Um, I had turned it into my editor and said, there might be a bit you have to edit in here, um, including the headline. But no, the piece was just about, I think, you know, as someone that was in the arena, uh, along with 20,000 other folks, which is another record, the final four and national title game also set an in-person attendance record, which is equally important in terms of uh, TV viewership, I think, in terms of data points. But, you know, as someone that sort of saw this exchange in real time, and then to sort of see the fallout of it on Twitter and stuff, and just different folks, um, talking heads, um, keyboard jockeys sort of giving their two cents, the people who never pay attention to women's basketball unless something like this happens. I guess I wasn't surprised at all because there is so much sexism and racism baked into so much of this. Um, but it was just one of those things where I was like, I can't believe, you know, three days after the national title game, we're still talking about this, even after Caitlin Clark has come out and said, 
you know, no one should say anything about Angel. It's fine. Um, and frankly, if I'm an Iowa fan right now, I'm thinking like the silver lining of this is that a pissed off Caitlin Clark is going to average like a 40 point triple double <laughs> next year. Like if you don't think this is going to be something that motivates her, if you don't think that she's going to think about the you can't see me every time she gets in the gym, like you haven't really talked to Caitlin Clark. You haven't really paid attention to how she plays the game. And she's so she doesn't need that external motivation at all, but you got to know that it drives her a lot. And so, um, you know, I think it's like, as I wrote in the piece, I, there's this part of me that's sort of in awe that we're writing these 1200, 1400 word pieces about something that can sort of be wrapped up as simply as women talk shit. It's fine. And it's good for the game. We're still talking about women's basketball in this moment. Um, I wish we were talking more about, you know, the Jasmine Carsons of the world and sort of how Caitlin broke Cheryl Swoops' scoring record and, you know, South Carolina's streak and what it meant for the sport and all of this. But um, we're still talking about women's basketball. All right, Sabrina, I want to get you to weigh in. First, um, I haven't slept since Caitlin Clark and and uh, Angel Reese got into it. I mean, that shook me uh, like to my core. I, I mean, I can't believe I saw trash talking and taunting on the on the court. So that that's part one. Um, uh, that's sarcasm, by the way, in case you didn't catch that, Sabrina. Of uh, yeah, I mean, the absurd amount of um, think pieces on this actually has made me laugh. I am with Chantel, though. Uh, Jane McManus, my longtime buddy, me and I were talking about this. Like, anytime, like, this stuff gets into, like, the larger ecosystem of sports, even with stupid people talking about it, like, it's good. I, I just, like, it ultimately um, will encourage more people to sample the product and then I think people who are willing to give the product a fair shake will like the product. There's always going to be people who just are going to use this for page views and uh, a lot of sexist and racist out there, whatever. But I think ultimately it brings more people in the tent, and I think that's a good thing. Um, I will say, though, that like it was uh, – I guess it's just my cynicism here. Like I found it so hilarious, like the amount of like waxing on this topic. And as Chantel said, anybody who's ever covered the game, there's shit talking in the game. Like one of the most famous players in the history of the sport, Diana Taurasi, is a massively known shit talker. Like none of this should be surprising. Uh, but yet, you know, we got into like a little patriarchy kind of uh, play here. How did you see this? And again, I like talking to people who cover sport on a day to day basis because I would think you must see the absurdity in, in all the chatter about this. Yeah, the conversation got a little too uh paternalistic for my taste, especially because, you know, the obvious undercurrents of Angel Reese is not allowed to shit talk like this, but Caitlin Clark is because Angel Reese is black. And that was just really unfortunate to have to witness over the course of, you know, the last three days, the fact that Angel had to talk about it when she's celebrating this shining moment of her career, you know, that she has to explain that, hey, I'm going to be myself and it's okay if I'm black. And I, you know, put my ring finger in front of Caitlin Clark's face because I just beat her in a national championship game. Like, I think it's awesome, but I just, I was disappointed for her that she had to deal with all of the ugly stuff that came with it. And I think it's important that, you know, Caitlin said what she said about Angel being able to trash talk because, you know, we just saw this last week with Clark and Haley Van Lith and it was not a big deal because again, both of them are white and it was a different conversation that was happening. So on the one hand, I do think it's really good that we're still talking about women's basketball. I just wish that there was a different tenor to some of these conversations because the the racism and the sexism is just is a lot to take in. Yeah, I understand that. We we will we will move on from this to stuff that 
all three of us like, and that's literally to talk about the sport. Sabrina, you put out a women's college basketball too early top 25. Am I correct about this? Yep. And it is already outdated with a WNBA draft withdrawal from this morning. <laughs> Oh, I love that. I, I love the like the whole like uh, cottage industry of putting out the uh, top twenty five like literally the the thirty seconds after the final like uh, <laughs> buzzer hits. It's just fantastic content. I, I can eat that up. All right, so give us your uh, top five and a quick like single sentence as to why you have them in your top five, and then Chantel, I want you to uh, comment on her top five, and then I will comment on her top five. All right, so I kept LSU at number one just because I think there's a certain amount of respect for having won the national title and Angel Reese is returning. Plus, we've seen Kim Mulkey just absolutely abuse the transfer portal this past year. Uh, I've got UConn at number two because they bring back who could be the very best player in the country in Paige Beckers. Uh, but not number one because she hasn't played a healthy season in three years. Uh, I've got Notre Dame at number three because I think they have the best guard rotation in the country. And like Iowa, if they just get one good transfer big, that is a menace of a team. We've got South Carolina at number four, even though they lose that entire freshman class because I'm, I'm sorry, that senior class that played together for the last four years, uh, just because I trust Don Staley to do good things during the regular season. And they've got a lot, a lot of bench depth that uh, Chantel outlined so wonderfully during the tournament. And then I have Iowa at number five because that was the lowest I could justify putting Caitlin Clark. Okay. Chantel, how do you see that? What do you think of that? I, I think it's great. I think what also, um, you know, sort of a side point of this is sort of what Sabrina said earlier. Another reason why I think there's more interest in women's basketball right now is that we do have this COVID bonus year. So in the way that, and not that men's sports is the barometer, but I think there's so much excitement kind of at the end of the season with the will he or won't he return or go pro. And we're finally sort of getting that on the women's side. And I think that's exciting for the game. Like Sabrina said, it's outdated, I assume, because Charisma Osborne from UCLA has decided to return. So perhaps the Bruins at 12. I, correct me if I'm wrong, Sabrina. Is that what you were talking about? It feels a little low to me right now. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so maybe the I think the the Bruins are definitely a top eight team now, seven. I don't know. Um, but that's exciting. But I think the other part that is really interesting about all of this is that the transfer portal has completely changed the way that rosters are comprised. And even in the time that we've been on this call, Anissa Morrow went into the transfer portal, uh, which if she lands somewhere, that is going to change a team ceiling for sure. Um, and so I, I think it's kind of hard, like at this moment in time, do I feel pretty good about Sabrina's top five? Yeah, I do. Um, there aren't a ton of bigs in the portal at this point. And so I'll be curious with Notre Dame and Iowa, sort of who they go after. You're going to have bigs that are looking, you know, maybe if they have one year left trying to decide, do you want to play with Olivia Miles or Caitlin Clark to kind of boost your draft stock? Um, both of those positions would be favorable, I would think. Um, South Carolina is the real wild card. They have such a good bench. Um, but not a ton of starting experience now. They're going to go from basically the most experienced starting core in the country, um, one of the most experienced starting cores women bas women's basketball has ever seen, to a really young group, but a group of like all former number one and two ranked players <laughs> at their position. Um, so Don Staley's cupboard is far from empty there. Um, and I think Utah's kind of a wild card too. They're maybe a team that other folks hadn't paid attention too much, but I like the fact that Sabrina has the Utes as the top ranked team from the Pac-12. So 
sadly, I can't sort of bring in any huge debate here because uh, I think Sabrina did a really good job with this top 25. Uh, Chantal, this is the worst debate show in history. Thank you for that. Um, I know. I can't bring in any hot takes. What should I say? It's um, all right. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Uh, all right. So, all right. So Sabrina, again, I, like, I think this is obviously, you know, your shit and this is a very good top 10. So let me, let me tell you like my, uh, sort of quick thought here as to how, um, if I was writing it, I might do it just to like get some conversation going. It's kind of a cheap way to do it. How do you feel about the argument that UConn would be the preseason number one and using the, the premise that, um, a returning page is absolutely motivated beyond belief. They're a much deeper team this year. AZ Fudge take a big jump between uh, year two and year three. They have um, a couple of. They have at least one big. Who's I think Lee Edwards is going to be a senior, right? Or am I, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, Lee Edwards. Right. Okay, so you have a you have a quality you have a quality interior player who's now a senior, which I always like, and you know some recruits coming in and back from health. And then the only thing I might flip is just, it's very hard to repeat. And so that's why I might have LSU either at uh, two or three. The other thing is, again, just to get people talking, I, I mean, I can't believe I'm saying this, but like it, uh, it would not surprise me if South Carolina like goes out in the elite eight this year. Like it, they, they do lose a lot and as great a coach as Dawn is, and you know, they do have a, you know, obviously they have talent, but that's the one top team I could see, you know, they're not going to fall to like 20 to me, but that's the one team I could see falling out of the top five. You buy any of anything I happen to be selling here? UConn thing is so funny to me because, you know, just for a little backstory, uh, our other coworker, Ben Pickman and I were brainstorming this, you know, back when we were in Dallas, who we wanted to be the number one team. And we literally ran through 10 teams before even remembering that the Huskies existed, <laughs> which is so <laughs> funny that like their streak ends and all of a sudden, oh yeah, UConn wasn't at the final four. Why should I even include them in my top 10? But I just, we haven't seen Paige Becker's and AZ Fudd play healthy for the last two years. And with all of the other injuries that UConn has dealt with, it's just hard to pick a team that you don't know what starting lineup is going to be available on any given night. And I feel very, very happy to be able to reward LSU with this meaningless top, top ranking in my way too early poll. <laughs> because I think there's something to be said about winning and then being able to start the season as the hunted. As far as South Carolina, I think that's 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 the one I struggled with the most just because I love all of their players so much. Like Chantel said, they're just bringing like, you know, dunking Ashlyn Watkins and Chloe Kitts, who enrolled early last year as one of the top recruits in the country and barely got to play all of these players who we have hardly seen. And I kind of like the idea that the Gamecocks get to condense their rotation a little bit and maybe just play eight players instead of 10 and get them a little bit more time so they get into more of a rhythm and we don't see situations like, you know, five different players trying to guard Caitlin Clark because Dawn had them available. Like I think being able to find your best and hone in on them is kind of going to serve South Carolina well this year. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, trust me, I'll get burned on this. They'll be, they'll be in the final next year and somebody play <laughs> this tape and be like, you're an idiot. I do love Camilla uh, Cardoza. I like that feels like uh um, a like kind of game changing kind of player, like someone that big, skilled, athletic, like that's a different kind of um, guard uh, as she gets more confident in her game. Um, you've already seen flashes of it, like there are stretches where she's unguardable, basically. And so um, I'm, I'm going to really enjoy following her development. 
And all right, one last topic, and then I'll let you guys go, and I appreciate your time. I'll start with you, Chantel. Um, so in seeing, you know, and again, a lot of, I think my, I think I'm informed a lot by the viewership, obviously, numbers that have just come out, but it's very, very clear that there's a gigantic group of people who are interested in Caitlin Clark now. I mean, I think that's just unquestionable. I think in terms of a singular star, I think she's the singular star that drove interest. Um, not the only reason people watch this tournament, South Carolina, uh, viewership wise has been a monster for a long time. But if, if you had to place one singular player, sort of, I think, capture the country's attention in that tournament, I, I, unquestionably it was her. Um, I, I feel like there's an opportunity. Um, I don't know if it's going to be the athletic or someplace, but to like really kind of hyper focus on her next year, it, it, just because like, I don't know if we've ever seen um, anybody in the sport. I'm not, I'm not saying like do like a Tim Tebow ESPN or LeBron thing, but I don't know. I just feel like there's, if I, if I, if like money wasn't an object, like I might just like hire somebody just to cover Iowa basketball this year and then try to figure out a way to monetize that content. How do, how do you see that? Are you volunteering to move to Iowa City for the company? Well, no, I'm, unfortunately, um, unfortunately, I'm I'm uh, not at the uh, station in life with the twins to be able to make that move, Chantel. But if I was 25, I'm on that plane, man. Tell the you know, tell the athletic bosses just to uh, you know set me up there. I would do it, yeah, because I just think that's going to be a fascinating basketball story in 2023. 2024 but i also at the same time don't want to be too over the top like you know was this more of a perfect storm and like you know someone's not going to care about iowa versus uh you know michigan state on a cold february day i don't know i just she just feels like one of these athletes that for whatever reason people are going to be interested in on a on a on a game by game basis in twenty three twenty four, which which it would be a rare thing for women's basketball. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to this, right? Um, because you know, I think when we, it's hard to talk about sort of the the history of media attention on a sport that has a lot of black women, and so often historically a lot of the players who get a lot of the attention are white um putting that aside if we can though like i don't think we've seen any player regardless of race gender in the women's game hit like the new york times did a, an analysis of her three-point shooting her threes that are 25 to 30 feet she's hitting them at 44 44 percent like just her skill set alone. Um, and so I think that's sort of the part where, you know, it feels weird to sort of say like, oh, we should like give all this attention to Caitlin, even though historically so many of the great players in this game have gone undercovered because of the color of their skin, I think at times. And so it's hard to talk about that, I think, without acknowledging, it's hard to talk about sort of the immediate attention, I will say, without acknowledging that fact. Um, that said, her skill set is just, you know, as someone that has watched her have a 40-point triple-double in person, like, it's just, I mean, there aren't words for it, which is unfortunate in our business as writers. I think Sabrina and I will largely spend much of the next few years of our lives, and Sabrina with, you know, our, our WNBA coverage as well, sort of figuring out new ways to write about 
her range and her as an athlete and sort of her mental growth. I think that's maybe, I would say when it comes to Caitlin, the part of her, her persona and her as an athlete that I most look forward to watching over the next year is not necessarily if she can, you know, shoot those same shots at 48%, but sort of how she develops in terms of her maturity. I think we've seen at times this year, um, a lot of growth in terms of keeping herself level. But I think we've also seen times when the calls get to her, when she's like, sort of like, you know, smacking her head, like, oh, I can't believe I did that. Um, and not necessarily seeing how that affects the team and her game. And so I'm, I'm most interested in her game specifically, if we are to cover her as I think we probably will over the next year, how she grows emotionally um, as a player. Yeah, no, I, that's well said. And there's a lot of nuance. And um, and to me, my sort of, I, th- I think that the coverage should be um, in addition to, not in lieu of. And you're absolutely right. Exactly. If you're, if you're not going to, if you're not going to sort of acknowledge what's uh, the reality of this, and that's a white uh, player in middle America who has a, um, you know, uh, like sort of like a, like a, I mean, I hate to sort of cliche it up, but you know, sort of like a Larry Birdish appeal, et cetera, et cetera. Like that is a factor and it should never be, um, that coverage should not be uh, in lieu of not covering um uh, Angel Reese or, you know, whoever, or Leah Boston in South Carolina this year, um, et cetera. So I think I'm glad you brought that up because I think if you don't at least acknowledge sort of the longtime elephants in the room, um, that's an issue. How do you see it, Sabrina? Again, I, I just, I, 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 my thought is just almost as much, I hate to sort of put it in his base terms, but almost as much from a financial economic perspective. I just think like, I think there's a way you can monetize interest in Caitlin Clark because I think people are interested. So that's where I'm coming from. Not to mention, obviously, she's an amazing story and 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 one of the great shooters in the history of uh, of the game. Um, so again, I'll, I'll leave it up to you. It's a sort of very open ended, off the top of my head kind of thought process. But no, I don't. I don't think ESPN is going to sign a reporter this year in Iowa to cover every one of her games. I think Chantel outlined those nuances of what it would mean to cover Caitlin Clark. You know not necessarily at the expense of other players, but, you know, in greater detail than other players, just because of, you know, the color of her skin that she's female presenting and all of that. Um, that being said, if Anissa Morrow decides to join Iowa, I think the Hawk index is probably a really good idea for the athletic or whoever chooses to do that. Can you imagine Anissa Morrow and Caitlin Clark together? We'd be getting hundred point games all the time. The national final would seem like a little anomaly. I mean, like not even anomaly, like a, a harbinger of things to come. <laughs> Love that. Well, now I'm not. I'm going to be thinking about that now too. If that happens, that would be uh, that would be awesome. Um, all right, Sabrina, can can we end this with just one thing? Can I just bet you a cup of coffee uh, for UConn uh, being? How about this? I'll bet you a cup of coffee that UConn is the number one ranked team in the last AP poll prior to the tournament. I'll give you every other team. You want to bet that cup of coffee? Yeah, I will take that bet. Okay, I feel like you have the better odds on that one, but it'll give me something. <laughs> I thought you to were going to say the preseason one, and I didn't even feel good about that. No, I won't. The preseason one, I'm not trusting the writers with, with my coffee. I'm just, I'm taking the AP um, right before the tournament starts. I just got, I mean, I'm, I trust me, I'll probably end up looking like an idiot. I just have a feeling about like that UConn team coming back. Like I, I haven't covered them historically for a long time. They don't need much to motivate them. I mean, it was almost silly. Like Chris Daly would be like, you guys at Sports Illustrated wrote this article like 
seven months ago, and here's this one paragraph that you said this one thing about us. I'm like, you guys are 15-time national champions. Why, why are you even focused on this? Anyway, that's my sort of thesis on this. So, All right, so a cup of coffee? We're good? Absolutely, yeah. All right, I'll make it high quality coffee if I lose. I promise. It won't be Tim Hortons or Dunkin' Donuts or anything like that. I'll make I'll make it I'll make it worth your while. Um, all right, Chantel, anything you want to add before we get out of here? I want in on this coffee bit only because I'm really tired right now. But do you want <laughs> if you you have to take a do you want a non LSU or UConn team? We can get put you in this bet as the number one. Yeah, heading into the tournament. I, you know, the tournament is the tournament. I'm talking about heading in. Heading into the tournament. Or do you think it'll be LSU and UConn? You know what? I'm going to be bold here. I think Neil Ivy is going to do some damage in the portal. Although that's hard because it's Notre Dame. Um, academically, you know, that's a different... You know, I'll stick with though. I'll take okay, I'll Notre take Dame. Notre right, Dame. This, this we're, is... we're only talking about a cough, cough, coffee here. <laughs> Mine yeah, might be and slightly I... less higher quality than yours, Richard, depending on how much you're looking to shell out. But I'll buy, uh, I'll buy someone a nice uh, latte. Well, yeah. I mean, if I'm not covering the tournament, you guys are kind of screwed because you're going to have to pay serious customs tax to mail this coffee to me here in Toronto. But um, we'll make this work. All right. So Chantel, you have Notre Dame. Who I do like. I'm with you on that. That's a, that's a good sleeper, number one. Um, Sabrina has uh, LSU. Or apparently the rest Sabrina, of the field in Sabrina our has, individual. And the rest of the field. Yeah. So you know what? I'm sorry, Sabrina. Literally everyone. Every- you have every team except Notre Dame and UConn, Sabrina. Okay? You get I'm feeling pretty else. good. Although I wish Chantel had picked someone other than Notre Dame. I know. You have every team, though. You're there. Call Brenda Freeze up. Ask her to get some transfers, and maybe you know we'll see what happens. Brenda's truly the person who's just going to crush the portal. I didn't even... She's at 17 right now, but I feel like we're going to wake up a few days from now, and she's going to have half the portal in uh, College Park. Either there or Ole Miss, right? Yeah, I never get to talk about this. this is why I like you, you uh, having you guys on. Um, you did phenomenal work this year. I read everything from the tournament. Um, I know it's a grind personally, and so I appreciate your work. I also know you guys enjoy the sport, so in some ways it's certainly a labor of love too. But uh, read um, Chantel Jennings' work uh, on The Athletic. Follow her on Twitter. Same with Sabrina Merchant. Um, they're uh, exceptional at what they do. And I appreciate them joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Um, Chantel, Sabrina, thank you uh, for coming on, and um, and I look forward to my uh, cup of coffee in March. It's Richard. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to uh, my guest Ryan Rucco, Chantel Jennings, and Sabrina Merchant. Thank you for coming on. Uh, if you like these podcasts and uh, these topics, please leave us a five star review and a nice note. That's how the podcast continues. Previous uh, podcast this week, we had Chad Finn and Austin Carp for a roundtable on a lot of different topics and uh, CNBC media reporter Alex Sherman on the WWE Endeavor merger um, had a lot of uh, fun guests over the last couple of weeks including uh, Holly Rowe of ESPN WWE announcer Michael Cole had the World Series voice and Dodgers play-by-play broadcaster Joe Davis Kevin Harlan was on this podcast in March Rhea Ripley was on this podcast in uh, March um, so there should be uh, if you head down the uh, archives uh stuff that you'll enjoy if you're a Formula One fan. I had uh, Luke Smith and Madeline Coleman just on how you cover the sport. So it should be something to cover today. I think you'll appreciate it. Uh, thanks to Patrick, of course, for all his hard work. Thanks to everybody at uh, Cadence 13 and Odyssey for uh, their support. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.